According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are here this morning for the purpose of growth. Join me, if you would, in Luke chapter 11, the Gospel of Luke chapter 11. Luke is in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Luke chapter 11. We can get a projector up and running here, and we should be good. We are in the midst of episode number 11 in the last Judean and Prean ministry of Jesus Christ. Episode 11 is the accused connection with Beelzebub. We read about it in verses 14 through 36. We have a number of points of study we've already covered. I will review them briefly this morning, and then we'll move on. We're going to focus mainly on the issues of happiness that uh, are mentioned, and uh, we'll examine the elements here. Before we do that, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure that... How are we doing? Okay. Make sure that we are in fellowship, suited up in our armor, and prepared to handle eternal truth. Shall we pray? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for the truth of your word and the privilege and blessing it is for us to assemble together under the authority of of your word to receive the instruction you have for us on a day by day basis. We thank you for this day that uh, the the evil thereof is sufficient, but uh, more than sufficient is the grace that you make available, that you pour forth, that you make abundant. We uh, rejoice at our prayer times. We've already had two. We have more on the way and just for all the ways that your word uh, flows forth. I thank you for the fellowship and the conversation with Pastor Jay Chapel this morning. And what a, what a delight that was there as well. We lift them up, their church, their needs, their struggles. I ask for your blessings upon them. And I thank you now for this time of study. We ask for your guidance and your direction. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, then. I'm having microphone issues this morning. We'll try it again. All right, Luke chapter 11. This is an episode that will have a lot of familiar features to us because the doctrine that's contained here is uh, redundant. It is repetitive from previous episodes. And we spent a fair amount of time last week reviewing those. I won't dwell on it, but I will give it to you as points of study this morning. Uh, Point one, and this is pretty common for every point one of every episode of every chapter, we try to fix the context. We try to fix how this episode relates to other areas, other episodes, other stages of Christ's ministry. And so we do that here in this point one as well. This episode revisits a number of previous accusations and consequent teachings. And there's a String of parallels here, for example, and let me back up, in uh, verses 14 and 15 when we read about him casting out a demon and the demon was mute. Actually, the victim of the demon was the mute one. Uh, When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the crowds were amazed. But some of them said he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. And so it's like, here we go again. And that's the nature of the angelic conflict, the nature of slander and accusation. Um, It's not the first time the Lord's been accused of association with Beelzebub. Probably won't be the last. All right. That sort of thing will happen. 
we will receive accusations of similar nature from time to time, and then we'll come and it will go and, and different things like that. Uh, occasionally you you google your your church and you find you're listed on some kind of a website and it's uh remarkable who who lists you and why they list you for the reasons that they have well all right christ is still in charge and they can do what they want to do but his is the plan we're pursuing uh in, in any event verses 14 and 15 you see have their parallel back in in matthew 9 and matthew 12 and that's important for us to see that uh, it's not just uh, parallel accounts that are being repeated, but it's actually the same gospel, the gospel of Matthew, recording a sequence of events. It happened in chapter 9. It happened again in chapter 12. It happens again now for a third time in Luke chapter 11. So they're not just parallel records, but they're sequential records in many cases, and that becomes important for us to observe. The verse here in verse 16, they were demanding a sign from him. That's uh, parallel across to Matthew chapter 12. We looked at that in the Galilean ministry, episode 25, where Jesus answered their demand for a sign. And basically the answer was, uh, you're only getting one sign. That's the sign of Jonah. And you better figure out what happens when the Son of Man returns to life on the third day, uh, because the sign of Jonah has a very important doctrinal application in its fulfillment in the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. Uh, under point C, we looked at the parallel from verses 17 through 23 about the kingdom divided against the kingdom. And, uh, and that's it. a powerful passage. It's one that comes into play for some more advanced angelic conflict studies. Um, one that we've already developed when we were in Galilean ministry, episode 24, uh, where Jesus was accused of blasphemy. And you see the references there, Matthew 12, Mark 3. Uh, important notice, as we've tracked the parallel passages, we're staying sequential here in Luke. Everything top to bottom there in the column is in verse order as far as Luke 11 is concerned. Uh, we're keeping the, the subpoints in, in verse order as far as Luke 11 goes. But the parallel is all scrambled up because we've gone from Galilee ministry episode 25. We've now backed up to Galilee ministry episode 24. So they're in different order. And even when we come back to uh, episode 25, which you notice three times on this one slide here alone, we got episode 25, there, there, and there. And yet, notice the order in Matthew, from Matthew 12, verse 38, uh, up to verses 43 through 45, and then back to 39 through 42. And so you see there's a scrambled order there as well. When You, you can't just take Matthew 12 in a pure parallel with Luke 11 because the order is different. And this is part of the work you do when you harmonize the Gospels and you and you recognize that these are not contradictory uh, discrepancies, but complementary episodes. All right, verses 24 through 26 then about the unclean spirit going out of a man and what a relief it is for a demoniac to have the demon actually step out for a minute. Uh, however, uh, relief is one thing, uh, protection is something else. And uh, what the provision needs to happen here is when he is relieved, when he is uh, spared from the demon possession, that is the opportunity, that, that man's got to get saved. And if he gets saved, then uh, he's no longer vulnerable to being reinfested. And the reinfestation is seven times worse than the initial possession when we understand the, the development there. The, the demon comes back with seven of his uh, of his demon buddies, verses 29 through 32. Then the crowds were increasing, 
He began to say, this generation is a wicked generation. I find this interesting. The crowds are increasing. He's been giving them tough messages and the crowds keep increasing. And uh, despite all of the efforts of the Pharisees and scribes and all the leaders that were trying to discredit him and attack him and criticize him and so forth, um, those that had an ear to hear, those that they identified the fact that there was something different here. <laughs> he spoke with authority. He taught not, not just an aspect of personality or style, but the actual power in the truth of what he taught and how he taught it. And that took hold. I think that's a feature of ministries like this one where the Word of God goes forth and it goes forth line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. And I think the reality of truth connects with believers that want truth. And it doesn't matter. The, the, the fun and games, programs, entertainment, any of the rest of that, a believer wants truth. And when truth is taught, it connects. And that's, that's a powerful thing. Because to me, uh, in particular... When I talk to men, I talk to husbands and fathers and men in the workplace. Uh, they don't have time for anything phony. You know, they deal with enough phoniness at, at work and in the career and in the world. And the idea of phoniness, men don't have time for that. And uh, <laughs> I can't tell you, the husbands I've run into, that just they tag along with their wives, they're going to church, not because they want to, but just because, you know, Makes the wife happy. We can cut down on some nagging and maybe, you know, whatever. You know, what a sad state. If, if they're just going to church to, to minimize nagging in their marriage, what are they really doing? But they come under teaching and they find truth and they find reality and they say, you know what? This is real. This isn't some, I think so many places are feminized or somehow church is kind of girly and whatnot. But truth is truth. Anyway, I'll quit my rabbit trail, but I notice here in verse 29, the crowds were increasing. And I think it's because the men were responding to the truth of doctrine. They were responding to the to the prophetic ministry of Jesus Christ. And they said, you know what? This is not uh, this is not a a feminine approach to to uh, anything. All right. The other uh, issues here under F and G, you got verse thirty three. That finds its parable on the Sermon on the Mount, or the famous parables of the kingdom, and then verses 34 through 36 that has its parable in, or the parallel in the Sermon on the Mount. So, quite a bit of the teaching out of Matthew gets revisited here, and that's important to note because uh, all of that realm of doctrine that he taught in the Gospel of Matthew was in a context of Galilee, in the Galilean ministry, in Capernaum and Nazareth and all those places up north. Now he's in the Perean region. He's in the Judean region. He's uh, encountering people that did not receive that teaching back when he first delivered it. And uh, so the repetition is, is of benefit there as well. Under point two, we examine the accusation here. This is the Beelzebul slander. And we saw in our point two, repeated accusations are useful tools of the adversary for reinforcing misperceptions. This is a tool of deceit. It is a mechanism that the liar will use. And even the most outrageous lies, without a shred of proof to them, without a shred of, of reality behind them, the most outrageous lies in the world will start to be believed so long as they're repeated enough times. And the more and more and more times people hear it, the more ready they are to accept it. To the point where the most outlandish, 
insane, uh, illogical, non-scientific theories of creation can become now accepted scientific fact. Evolution, Big Bang, all of that is fact in uh, educational circles. And if you teach a divine creation as per the Bible record, then you are the uh, primitive, know-nothing buffoon. And uh, you need to get with the 21st century and adjust your thinking to modern science. All right? That's just the world we live in. Repeated accusations, repeated lies can become accepted as truth because they're perceived to be true. And they're useful tools. So, uh, you know, the, the Pharisees who themselves are called a brood of vipers, and we know that there was demonic empowerment behind some of the activity they were involved with, uh, they know or ought to know that he, there's no demon involvement with him. Every demon that uh, he encounters trembles before him and falls on the ground and pleads with him not to be banished to the abyss uh, in any event. This is uh, part of what we examine there. Passing on some of the subpoints. It is a progression, though, because previously it had been the leadership leveling those accusations. It had been the scribes and Pharisees. When you read now, though, it appears to be the crowds. You'll notice some of them in verse 15. Who, who is them? Well, it's the crowds. You see, they, that's the last group mentioned in verse 14. The crowds were amazed, but some of them, some of the crowds. So and it's not just uh, the leaders promoting the bills of slander. Now it's word on the street. Common knowledge, word on the street. That's an important progression. We also spoke about the Mariolatry issues in verses 27 and 28. And um, different aspects there. Of course, you may uh, know some Mary worshipers yourself. If, uh, if you know any, this is uh, something that addresses their, uh, where they miss the mark in some respects. While Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. All right. Or the paps at which you sucked. If you like the old King James Elizabethan English. And he said to them, on the contrary. On the contrary. You know, it's remarkable. There's the ways that he contradicts lies or false approaches is interesting. Sometimes he's very gentle about it. Sometimes he says, yes, but in addition to that, sometimes he says, well, not exactly here. He says, no, not at all. On the contrary. Stop right there. That statement is incorrect. Here is the true statement. On the contrary means that uh, the blessedness they were pronouncing, which is the happiness they were pronouncing, is not related to the physical maternity of the humanity of our Savior. And uh, exalting the, uh, the uh, physical maternity of the humanity of our Savior is not appropriate. It's not biblical, it's not appropriate, and it misses the mark. And the, the Roman Catholic Church that still uh, promotes that is uh, involved in what's commonly called Mariolatry. That's the idolatry of Mary is what you have there in Mariolatry. Okay. So he says, on the contrary, wombs are not happy. Breasts are not happy. Happiness is a quality of soul. Happiness is an expression of soul in worship to God the Father. And that's what we want to get a handle on here today. 
the proposed proverb. It didn't catch on. Well, not with him anyway. It caught on in Roman circles. Um, But it is contrary to the Lord's declaration. He says, on the contrary, happy makarios, or plural, makarioi, happy, are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Who hear the word of God and observe it. In other words, disciples actively exercising their Christian way of life. Disciples actively exercising the Christian way of life. Anything short of that uh, does not have the promise of Makarios happiness in temporal life. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. So we talk about, of course, broad is the path that leads to destruction. Narrow is the gate and, uh, and, and that leads to life. We understand that. When you look at all of humanity, the six billion people on the planet today, how many are regenerate as opposed to how many are lost on the road to hell? Okay? It's a ratio. It's a small fraction. And even within the portion that is regenerate, So, okay, they're saved, they're born again, they have eternal life. How many are disciples? Because remember, the requirement for disciple is that you are abiding in the Word of God. So how many of the regenerate are abiding in the Word of God? But that's not the last step. Because how many disciples, you know them and I know them, I've known them personally, churches that promote uh, teaching but don't major on the application. In other words, it's intake, 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 intake. Where's the application? Where's the exhale? And uh, notice this verse. It does not say, on the contrary, happy are those who take in doctrine. And the crowds were increasing. No, no, it says, who hear the word. Okay, that's step one. Hear the word of God and observe it. And observe it. Because the doctrine you take in, the Word of God that convicts you, you've got to do something about it. You've got to make use of it. You've got to live it. You've got to observe it. And not just simply know the truth and, and do contrary, uh, make contrary choices. So hearing and observing, there's happiness. There's makarios happiness. I want to go through a study on happiness this morning and we'll address some of the vocabulary and, and survey some of the verses. It's not a comprehensive study. And it's not categorized and pointed and subpointed and delineated it's uh, it's more of a of a uh, rapid survey of passages but it's it's sufficient enough for our purposes today that it's going to give us uh, a number of things to chew on and some things to uh, to uh, to make use of so i think it'll be a blessing for us it's contrary to the lord's declaration and as such it needs to be rejected any celebration of uh, the human maternity of, or the uh, physical maternity of our Savior's humanity is, uh, is misdirected. And, uh, and that verse makes it very clear. Okay. It's also contrary. Did I give this to you also last week? It's also contrary to the Lord's prophesied parable. Did we look at this already? We ran out of time. We looked at it. Okay. That's right. Because in the coming day of wrath, uh, being a mother will not be on your favor. Uh, to the to the Jewish uh, inhabitants of Jerusalem that are going to have to flee in the uh, advancing uh, advancing armies of uh, Antichrist and so forth, uh, the nursing mothers, the the young, the ones with young babies, uh, are gonna the, they're gonna be too slow. 
I mean, let's face it. <laughs> it's just, it takes time. Absolutely, it takes time. All right. And uh, and when you're seven months along, eight months along and waddling, and you, you're not really running at the speed you're going to need to be running at. <laughs> Fortunately, though, that's tribulational, and we won't be here to see any of that. All right. So we won't go back to Luke 23. Let's look at point four then. Even without the aspects of Mariolatry, anyone with a Makarios misorientation is facing trouble in temporal life. With a Makarios misorientation. And I want you to learn the word Makarios. M-A-K-A-R-I-O-S. Makarios. I think we need to be consistent with biblical terminology. Particularly when the world, the cosmos, just messes things up. <laughs> right? I mean, we live in a day, it's like love. Oh my goodness. This world and what this world calls love is pathetic. Tragic. And they confuse uh, lust with love. They confuse all kinds of things. They, uh, Oh, it's just a nightmare. See, and you wonder when your kids grow up, are they going <laughs> to, what kind of world are they going to live in? Well, so we draw distinctions and we teach doctrine. We want to understand agape love. We want to understand philos love. We want to understand storge love. We want to understand the biblical approach to love. Well, I think happiness is the same way. Because, <laughs> you know, ask ten people on the street, what, what's, what's happiness? You get ten different answers. All right? Or where they look to find their happiness. Or what makes them happy. All right? Or what makes them unhappy. It's remarkable because even believers with doctrine will still stumble into realms where they allow circumstances to drive their happiness or their unhappiness. And under certain sets of circumstances, they're happy. And under sets of circumstances, they're unhappy. And their life's an up and down roller coaster. They're like an elevator. Sometimes up, sometimes down. Makarios is unrelated to your circumstances. Makarios is the uh, estate of the born-again believer in Jesus Christ who is occupied with the Word of God both in the hearing and the exercise, the application of it, who hear the Word of God and observe it. And so if you're misoriented to happiness, if you are misoriented to makarios, then, uh, then you're going to have trouble. On the flip side of that, though, if you are oriented properly, if you have an appreciation for Makarios, you've learned how to develop it. This is what was uh, the, uh, not the top level, but the second to top level in the old um, edification complex for the soul. Remember that? Inner happiness. Right below the, the, the penthouse, which was the mastery of the circumstances and details of life. This is that inner happiness. This is the Makarios. And you can have it even when... Uh, health is gone and the bills are stacking up and bill collectors are lining up outside the door and and uh, and uh, a president not of your choice is taking office next week. It does not affect your Makarios one bit. See, your team wins a bowl game, loses a bowl game, who cares? Does not affect Makarios because football happiness is a separate category. All right. Happiness and blessings are interrelated and inseparable. 
And so in our study, we're going to examine both happiness and blessings. It's important that we do so because I think the language confuses things when consistently you have blessed instead of happy. Blessed is the womb. Blessed are you. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the meek. When happy, happy, happy works just as well in every one of those contexts. Um, But we have a feature of Elizabethan English where blessedness and happiness became interchangeable. And uh, that's why I like to, I don't like calling them interchangeable, but I do use the terms interrelated and inseparable. Okay, we've had teaching on blessings in the past. I'm going to touch on it to a point here. Um, Grace Notes has a great study on the difference between blessing and happiness. It's got a good study on blessing. What does it mean to be eulogetos? What are what does it mean to eulogeo uh, somebody when God blesses us or we bless God? What's involved there in a blessing? Um, in particular, it's important that we get we separate blessings away from uh, wealth. Blessings are not just simply uh, monetary uh, quantities. They're not earthly at all. Our blessings are in the heavenly places in Christ. And so uh, the money you make, the food you eat, and different things like that, uh, if you think of them as blessings, understand that they are secondary blessings. They are earthly reflections of what ultimately is already yours as the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. So we'll talk about that. Happiness and blessings. Now, you're happy not because you're blessed. And you're blessed in spite of being happy. They're inseparable, and yet they both happen at the same time. And Maybe I didn't say that right. Um, We don't want to fall into a trap that happiness is dependent upon how God blesses you. Okay? Um, Because our ultimately... Our finite vision does not allow us to understand everything that God has blessed us with anyway. If we have the right perspective, we understand we have every blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And you have no more than I have, and I have no more than you have, and we have all of them. We have the totality in Christ. If the temporal life provisions or reflections maybe aren't as obvious from time to time, then that's only in the earthly realm and it should not affect our spiritual happiness so that will become clear as well let's look at our happiness terms makarios is what we have in this passage makarios the adjective here for happy number 3107 it comes out of a verb though makarizo m-a-k-a-r-i-z-o makarizo that's your verb to be happy to express happiness. So you have your adjective. And the verbs only used twice. But the adjectives used 50 times. And then the noun. Makarizmas. Uh, is used three more times. So you put them all together. You have 55 different places to look at in the New Testament. And you get a good survey of everything related to the makarizo or makarios family of words. Coming out of the Hebrew. Asherah. Think Asher. All right, Asher, the son of uh, Jacob, became one of the tribes of Israel, Asher. And remarkably enough, on the day Asher was born, his mother pronounced her happiness 
because at that time there was a bit of a rivalry and competition going on between these wives of, uh, of Jacob. And in particular, the one who couldn't have babies was uh, growing more and more resentful for the sister who was having all the babies. And so she came up with this scheme to provide a handmaiden in her place and have babies through her. And that ultimately was going to provide her happiness, right? <laughs> well, life of Jacob's study, we, we went through all of this. Anyway, Asherah, and it comes from the term Esher, which means happy. And you've got 44 uses of Asherah in the Old Testament. And uh, our survey will encompass a number of those terms. But they come up. You've studied them already because we looked at it in Psalm 119. In the Aleph strophe and in uh, the Baith strophe, they came up in both the first two strophes. Uh, but the very first verses, how blessed are, how happy are. Uh, the beginning of Psalm 1, happy is. Um, and you'll note that Jesus Christ's message about happy are those who hear the word and obey it or observe it is consistent with Psalm 1. It's consistent with what Psalm 119. It's the, it's the fundamental statement of, of doctrine with respect to human beings. Get in the word of God. Learn it. Live it. It's the uh, provision for happiness. We'll look at some of those verses coming up. I think you're familiar with them already. So those are our happiness terms. Keep in mind, this is a soul capacity of happiness. It is not to be confused with emotional ecstasy. Please, please, please keep that in mind. Let me draw it out for you. I haven't done this for a while. I know uh, Pastor Jensen used to teach this. Pastor Eichmann, Pastor Braun, Pastor Theme, I, I believe, used to teach this happiness spectrum. If you've never seen it, then let today be the first time. All right. I think the happiness spectrum ought to be a smiley face. <laughs> when you teach the misery spectrum, you, of course... Make it a frowny face. But we got a smiley face for the happiness spectrum. And it is a spectrum from left to right. And you're not always up here in the, uh, in the woo-hoo, throw a party, blow the party favor uh, ecstasy of what this world calls happiness. All right? Not every event is a uh, last-second touchdown victory. Right? The clock's winding down and you're four points behind and, you know, and then the thrill and the, the jazz and the, all the emotional um, ecstasy there. Sometimes you're down here in the tranquility end. And there's a spectrum in between. There are stages in between. And Scripture describes them, see. Anyway, it's, a, it's an important spectrum to understand because confusion on this damages believers. Who think that somehow, if they're not, if they're not up here, if they're not at least at the, the 8 to 10 scale, right, then there's something wrong with them. What's wrong with my faith? What's wrong with my walk? Why am I not happier? Why am I, why, why don't I have a happier marriage? Why don't I have happier children? Why don't I have a happier job? Why don't I have, you know, why am I not here in this, in this thrill of ecstasy? Well, 
It's not the life we have. It's not the conflict we live. It's not the intensified stage of the angelic conflict. Life is not one party after another party after another party after another party. There are seasons where you have that as a blessing, and then there are seasons where you drop back to the more tranquil end. But see, the thing is, is no matter how rough things get, you should never drop below these realms of tranquility. That ought to be the baseline where you have this, uh, the, the spiritual stability that holds you. You never plunge into realms of, of, uh, of despair. And it's interesting, in this misery spectrum, People confuse this misery spectrum as well. Don't confuse that because you can still have sorrow and you can still have sadness in the happiness spectrum. It doesn't derail your inner happiness. It doesn't derail your makarios even when other things cause you grief. Jesus Christ wept over Jerusalem. Uh, Paul wept over those that we're not walking as they should be walking. Instead, they were enemies of the cross of Christ and he just wept over them because they've been taught better. They've been taught otherwise. And so, yeah, you've got realms of sorrow, realms of sadness. God himself says there were things that sorrowed him. God didn't sin. Jesus Christ was sorrowful. He didn't sin. So as we maintain our orientation here in this happiness spectrum, Let's keep in mind that Makarios happiness or Escher happiness is not uh, emotional ecstasy. It may not always be, uh, you know, when something sad happens, when a loved one physically dies and goes to glory, there's human sadness there. And that human sadness is appropriate, it's proper, it's normal, it's biblical, and it will slide you to the left in that spectrum. You will, you will drop to more tranquil uh, degrees of your Makarios. So, those are our happiness terms. We also have blessing terms. And this is our Eulageo family. Eulageo is your verb, number 2127. EU is your prefix that means well or good. Logeo, like logos for word. You're, you're giving a good word. You're speaking well of somebody. That's why the eulogy is a feature of funeral services. Your, your friends and loved ones, they stand up and they give good words about you. See, which is kind of a shame that we postpone eulogies until your funeral. <laughs> I've been to some funerals where you wondered, you know, if the guy wasn't dead, would you be saying that? <laughs> In any event... Um, Eulageo is your verb. Eulagetos is a noun, number 2128, meaning uh, blessed, blessed one. And eulagia is the, uh, is another noun uh, for, uh, for blessing. So number 2129, uh, you got 41 uses of the verb, eight there of the adjective, and uh, 16 on the noun eulagia. But the idea of blessing, notice how verbal they are. <laughs> Right? Verbal. That, that, doesn't, that doesn't fly with a lot of unbelievers in this world, and sadly, a lot of believers too. You know, keep your words. I want the money. Right? Uh, bless, blessing in some people's minds is financial. It's tangible. It's something, you know, um, the boss gives you a good word. You say, well, okay, well, that's nice, but where's the pay raise? <laughs> right? Um, I'm talking 
world viewpoint here. You get me? Okay. Um, and yet, Scripture declares so many of the blessings in verbal contexts. Not only God's blessings upon us, but man's blessing upon man. When Jacob was, uh, uh, when Isaac was desiring to bless his sons, it was there were verbal proclamations, verbal blessings. When you give a blessing, it is a verbal expression. Now God, of course, can make it happen simply by saying so. God says, "Let there be light," and there's light. God says, "Bless you," and you're blessed. Now, if we say, bless you, blessings be upon you, and so forth, do we create a new reality just by our statement of something? You know, can we say, let there be, and behold, it exists? No. But we can utter blessings in terms of our prayers, in terms of our desires, in terms of our request to the throne of grace. May the Lord bless you and keep you. We're not the source of the blessing, but God is. And we're invoking that when we make it a a prayer item, when we make it an intercession. And then ultimately, how do we bless God? What does he he doesn't need anything? How do we give him something that that meets a need or something that he doesn't already have? Well, we speak well of him, and that produces a benefit in his uh, reception of our volitional offerings, of our the expression of our uh, unconditional love. So these are the terms there, and you will note that they are verbal, not tangible uh, wealth uh, or possessions of any sort. The Hebrew, Barak, speaking of next week, we're going to have a blessing for president. At least in terms of the etymological meaning of his name, Barak. B-A-R-A-K, Barak. This is where Baraka comes from. Baraka is blessing. Barak is the verb to bless. So Barak, number 1288, B-A-R-A-K, used 327 times in the Old Testament. One of the more dominant terms in the Old Testament is blessing. God filled 39 books of Scripture detailing to His covenant nation how He wanted to bless them and how He would bless them. And Israel spent 39 books of the Old Testament defying Him. (laughs) Oh, goodness. But it doesn't thwart His plan. He's going to bless them in spite of themselves. He's not blessing them because they've earned it or deserved it. He's blessing them because He's a God of grace. The noun form is a feminine noun. Barakah. B-E-R-A. I didn't transliterate that. I'm sorry. I transliterated the B-A-R-A-K. Barak. But the noun, 1293, is B-E-R-A-K-A-H. B-E-R-A-K-A-H. Baraka. It's a feminine noun for blessing, number 1293. And it's used 71 times. So between the verb and the noun, you've got about 400 uses there to, uh, to study in terms of blessings. Now, see, here's where we've got to be careful. And this is where church-age believers get lost. When they fail to make the proper application of an Old Testament promise in a New Testament context. When they fail to identify that the Old Testament message to Israel was fundamentally earthly and the New Testament message to the church is fundamentally heavenly, spiritual, eternal. And they get confused. 
and they start to think in terms of health, wealth, and prosperity. They start to think in terms of uh, uh, prosperity theology, dominion theology, accumulating wealth, bringing in the kingdom. (laughs) We already are in the kingdom as far as the kingdom of heaven is concerned. Our citizenship is in heaven. The kingdom they're trying to bring in isn't even ours. The kingdom that's on the way is the Davidic kingdom, the Davidic throne, Israel's kingdom. And, and that's not our inheritance. We're the bride, we're the queen, we'll be, we will rule over that kingdom in Christ and with Christ, but that's not our kingdom. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven is not our prayer. If you understand the Old Testament context towards Israel and the earthly sphere of those blessings... And I think people that are all eager to accumulate the earthly blessings are missing the heavenly point. We're supposed to be laying up treasures in heaven. So uh, there's elements there as well. The um, and we'll we'll have more to do on this. In fact, our Sunday night plan of God series will help in this in this regard to distinguish between Israel and the church, Old Testament, New Testament, law and grace. Um, many different elements that come into play there, not just wealth, not just uh, that. There's there's uh, other applications too. Uh, praying for the peace of Jerusalem we talked about from the Psalms. Is that our commandment? Under what context was Israel commanded to pray for the peace of Jerusalem when their kingdom was divided and they were in captivity and they were promised a restoration and, and all the rest? Um, or don't even get me started on Jabez and <laughs> different prayers there and so on and so forth. Even the, um, this gets me in trouble sometimes, the uh, imperative to be fruitful and multiply. Was that given to the church? Was that given to Adam and Eve? Was that given to Noah after the flood? Was that a promise to Israel for blessings on their heritage, on their descendants, that he would make them a fruitful people? You get to uh, Corinthians and you find out uh, that we're in the difficult days of the angelic conflict. In any event. Happiness terms, blessing terms. Let's do a rapid survey of happiness and blessing passages under point B. I don't know how far we'll get and however far we get is how far we'll get. And then next week we'll come back. Lord willing, and rapture pending. Actually, uh, I don't plan on being here next week, but we'll <laughs> we're pending the trumpet, and we'll see what happens. All right. There they are. Think the Bible says anything about happiness? Happiness passages. And uh, they're in canonical order. And uh, a couple of them are underlined, and you're saying, why are those underlined? I don't remember. Oh, yeah, 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 I do. Because Psalm 32, Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2 is the psalm that's being quoted in Romans 4, verses 7 and 8. That's why. It's the same doctrine. It's just simply the Romans quotation of the psalm. So let's get a start on it. Deuteronomy 33. You know, uh, doesn't Genesis say anything about happiness? Doesn't Exodus say anything about happiness? You know, when they came out of Egypt and got their freedom from slavery, don't you think they were happy? Yeah, they probably were happy. But we don't have thorough doctrinal developments on happiness in 
Genesis or Exodus or Leviticus. And really to the end of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 33 is near the end. Um, I'm sure they were happy. I'm sure there were also things that made them unhappy. All right, Deuteronomy 33. You know, it's interesting. When a doctrine gets introduced, when a term has its first occurrence... When a, when a doctrinal theme has its very first initial presentation in Scripture is critical. It is a fundamental hermeneutic to recognize the first occurrence of a term, a concept, or a doctrine in the Scripture. As uh, Ralph says many times, he said it again when he was here uh, in November, the, the first use of love is, is uh, Abraham to his son Isaac. You don't have love in Genesis until you get to chapter 21 where Abraham is sacrificing Isaac. And why is that? I mean, there's a lot of places before that where he could sure talk about love. I'm sure Adam and Eve and he created them and they were naked and, you know, didn't Adam love Eve? I'm sure he did. I'm sure Abraham loved Sarah. I'm sure there was all kinds of love. But God reserved the discussion of it, the development of it, the use of the word, until he could do so in a passage where a father loved his only begotten son and was willing to put him to death. And that was so important because it tells the story of our salvation, of a father who takes his only begotten son whom he loves and gives him to death so you and I can have eternal life. Likewise here. So first use. Any term in its first use becomes important. Here in Deuteronomy 33, we start to see the blessings of Moses as he's pronouncing different realms uh, upon the, the tribes. And uh, in particular, he addresses them in their totality then in terms of happiness. So he goes tribe by tribe by tribe. Throughout this chapter, it's a song he composes and they sing it and he blesses them. And then uh, he gets down through Gad, Dan, Naphtali, Asher, which is happy, more happy than the sons of Asher and so forth. But ultimately, when you look down to the nation as a whole, verse 26 says, There is none like the God of Jeshurun. Who in the world is Jeshurun? Jeshurun is a poetic name for Israel, but it's Israel under prosperity. Israel in the blessings of maximum prosperity. Sadly, in most cases, Jeshurun wax fat. <laughs> and Jeshurun means not only is Israel prosperous, but because they're prosperous, they are turning to wickedness and idolatry. But there is none like the God of Jeshurun who rides the heavens to your help and through the skies in his majesty. The eternal God is a dwelling place and underneath are the everlasting arms. We sing this occasionally. Some of our hymnology addresses the, the everlasting arms. He drove out the enemy from before you and said, destroy. So Israel dwells in security. Look at that. Israel dwells in security, not because they made happy, peaceful friends with their enemies, but because the Lord drove them out. Peace through victory. Israel dwells in security. The fountain of Jacob is secluded in a land of grain and new wine. His heavens also drop down dew. Happy are you, O Israel. Here's their definition of happiness. This is national happiness to the covenant nation. Happy are you, O Israel. Who is like you? A people saved by Yahweh, 
the Lord, Jehovah, who is the shield of your help and the sword of your majesty. So your enemies will cringe before you and you will tread upon their high places. Notice national happiness is dependent upon their relationship with Jehovah. Their relationship with the God of the universe, the one true God. And a nation that fears the Lord is happy. I don't see anything in there about the Dow Jones or their their stock market or their military might. The enemies were driven forth not because they were militarily powerful, because the Lord went before them. All right, 1 Kings 10.8. You jump ahead quite a bit when you go from Deuteronomy to 1 Kings. Not in terms of books of the Bible, but more so in terms of time. You're crossing the span of conquest, the span of judges, the span of uh, Saul and David. And you arrive at Solomon. And the Queen of Sheba shows up. And she uh, has the opportunity to testify uh, that there are no Gentile nations on this planet that could have a claim to the happiness that Israel could have under the wisdom of Solomon. And so uh, the Queen of Sheba uh, perceives all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, and all these other things. And uh, she'd heard the report previously, verse 6, she said to the king, it was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. Nevertheless, I did not believe the reports. (laughs) You know, the world looks at things and says, that's just too good to be true. Oh, that doesn't make any sense. I don't understand that. Till I came and my eyes had seen it. Behold, the half was not told to me. Not only was it true, completely true, 100% true, but I didn't even know the half of it. And you exceed in wisdom and prosperity the report which I had heard. How blessed are your men. And this is the asherah, the happiness. How happy are these your servants who stand before you continually and hear your wisdom. Happy be the Lord, your God, who delighted in you to set you on the throne of Israel. And notice the, the, the uh, connection there between verse 8 and verse 9. Our happiness and then the Lord in his view. Do you understand? I hope you do. If not, Sunday night, Plan of God workshop. God is accomplishing all his good pleasure. God is happy about his plan. He's been happy about it. He continues to be happy about it. He will always be happy about celebrating and glorifying His Son between now and Omega. He is delighted to glorify His Son. Definition of sovereignty, He does that which He pleases. Who can stay His hand? And so uh, we have uh, happiness blessings on the people of Israel but even the happiness blessings of the Lord your God who delighted in you to set you on the throne of Israel. And we we know that every king that takes his seat does so at the direction of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ controls history. And is he doing so for his happiness? Or is he doing so in sorrow? Discipline upon a nation. Scripture describes both conditions. Job 5.17 this is not in an Israel context. It's a Gentile context. It's an application of uh, wisdom on the part of a Gentile perspective. Pre-Abraham, pre-Israel. 
in the book of Job. And yet it's a universal circumstance that applies to all humanity in the age of Israel, the age of uh, the Gentiles, the church age, on into the millennium. Behold, how happy is the man whom God reproves. I don't know why the publishers decided to go with happy there instead of blessed. They, they dodge happy in so many places and switch over to blessed. Why didn't they say how blessed is the man whom God reproves? It's true. He's happy and, and, and blessed for the reproof. How happy is the man whom God reproves. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. Now that happiness. Is that the woohoo ecstasy happiness? Like, oh wow, <laughs> I'm under divine discipline and this is great. You know, send out some invitations, bake a cake, throw a party. <laughs> it's not that kind of happiness. And yet, what does Hebrews say? What about divine discipline? It produces, at the moment, seems not to be joyful, it seems sorrowful at the moment, but afterwards, when it yields repentance, it produces the peaceful fruit of righteousness. You can be happy, say, man, my father loves me. He loves me enough to not let me get away with the stupid things I was doing in my carnality. I'm happy to know that I belong to a father who loves me enough to not let me do these things. And so uh, this is the uh, the blessings there. I already mentioned Psalms. Let's look at them. Psalm 1. And these universal truths across all dispensational boundaries. How blessed is the man, or how happy is the man, who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. This, there is a total agreement in this statement with what Jesus Christ told that woman in Luke chapter 11. That woman that was all into Mary and the womb and the breasts and the happiness there. No. Jesus said, no, happy are the, those who hear the word of God and observe it. Totally consistent with Psalm 1, 1 and 2. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the path of sinners. See, that guy is listening to other counsel and observing other standards. He's listening and living just like we're supposed to do, except he's listening to the lies and he's living the world system. But the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the path of sinners, what's he doing? His delight is in the law of the Lord. He's listening to the word of God and he's observing it. His law, he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. I love that. Whatever he does, he prospers. And you'll note that's not temporal prosperity in, in its strictest sense. That's not doesn't say that uh you know this guy is bound to be uh you know uh financially comfortable for the rest of his life. It doesn't mean that he's uh he's he's well to do. He might be poor as a church mouse, but he prospers because his delights in the word in the word of God. And so it's, it's amazing how uh, brothers and sisters of, of the most modest means available are fulfilling this verse every single day. The folks, uh, many of the, of the believers we met in the Philippines, um, I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's a different world over there. It's just insane. And, um, you know, some of them are feeding families of four and families of six and families of eight. 
Uh, they're living on, uh, and yes, it's a different standard of living. It's a different cost of living and, and so forth. But, you know, their, their annual income or their monthly income is, is you know, roughly one dinner at Pluckers. <laughs> the cash equivalent value there. And you think, oh my goodness. And yet, they delight in the, in the Word of God. They teach the Word. They communicate the Gospel. It's a, it's a powerful thing. Um, it's not the only psalm. Look at this whole string of psalms. Psalm 212, Psalm 32, Psalm 33, Psalm 84, uh, Psalm 119. Let's see if we can get through those and then we'll resume. Lord willing, rapture pending. Uh, psalm 212. See, here's um, a millennial application of warning. The kings of the earth are taking their stand and they're, they've got this uh, conspiracy going on. And all through the thousand year reign of Christ, these Gentile nations are figuring out how they can depose Jesus off his throne, how they can bust Satan out of his jail, and how they can take over this world. And it's useless. It's not going to happen. Fire is going to consume them at the final Gog-Magog rebellion. He who sits in the heavens laughs, we're told in verse 4. Because his king, his beloved one, is on Zion. But he says uh, at the end of this, Now therefore, O king, show discernment, take warnings, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, because the Son himself is worthy of worship and homage. He is God and man on the throne. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry, and that you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. Notice now how happy are all who take refuge in him. So you start combining all these principles out of the, out of the Psalms. You have the happiness in the law of the Lord, meditating day and night. That's from chapter 1. Here you have taking refuge in him in chapter 2. And you start to put the components together. As I said, what you have here is a rapid survey. You don't have it all synthesized and delineated and spelled out in a structured outline or, or so forth. Make one of your own. Just start spelling these things out. Taking refuge in him is a source for happiness. Over to Psalm 32. Love Psalm 32. It's a um, we were in this passage uh, not too long ago in uh, or you weren't I say we um, Robert Jewell and I went through a number of these psalms in over in the prison and uh, Psalm 34 was one of them Psalm 32 was another one of them. But how happy is he whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered. So you're not killing yourself with guilt over what you've done. Because you know, you know something? It was paid for. It's taken away. Nailed to the cross. How happy is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and whose, in whose spirit there is no deceit. The blessings we have of salvation, redemption, forgiveness. There's happiness. <laughs> like when Paul says, I'm determined to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Sometimes you've got to boil it down to that. When you you start listing, you know, fourteen earthly reasons why you're not happy <laughs> say, okay. Or hundred and fourteen earthly reasons. Just shove those all aside and now look at one great big spiritual reason. You're born again. You're regenerate. Your transgression is forgiven, your sin is covered. 
You're not the man to whom the Lord imputes iniquity. That was Jesus Christ. Your iniquities were imputed to him and judged. The wrath of God was poured out. So you can understand uh, perspectives on happiness in that context. That's what gets quoted in Romans 4, by the way. All right, quickly then, 33. Happy is the nation whose God is the Lord. We spoke of this a moment ago. The Queen of Sheba said, this is what makes a nation happy. Happy is the nation whose God is the Lord. Now, the United States of America is not a covenant nation as a theocracy. We are not His chosen people. But when we have a preponderance of born-again believers who do fear the Lord, then we can be salt and light and have uh, happiness, blessings, provision on behalf of our nation. Nations where churches have freedom to teach the Word of God are the nations that have provision for such happiness. So happy is the nation whose God is the Lord. Ultimately, happy is the nation of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Oh my goodness, I'm out of time. I'm going long. I better stop. Because it would not be fair to Psalm 84 to just race on through it. And Psalm 119 to race on through it. And Psalm 127 to race on through it. So we'll uh, we'll pick, that, pick up on this next week. Again, Lord willing, rapture pending. Thank you, Father, for the truth of your word, for the happiness that comes in the word of God. And uh, Father, if... Uh, we've got folks that have drifted in that appreciation. I pray you would restore it. Father, if we've got brothers and sisters that have uh, looked elsewhere for uh, happiness provision, I pray that you would uh, provide the adjustments to their thinking that the happiness they think they're looking for is not the happiness you're providing and that the makarios they need is in a daily walk with you taking in the Word of God, living it, dwelling on it, celebrating it. Father, we thank You for the study we completed not too long ago in Psalm 119 because there was a young man, even while in the midst of being carried away into captivity, was involved in a day-by-day love affair with Your Word. And I thank You that that example um, makes it very clear for each one of us how we should be conducting our lives. Thank you for this time of study. Thank you for the provision of your grace, a lampstand where the word of God goes forth. We thank you in his most precious and holy name. Amen.